Consummate athletes seeks health, community, and adventure through movement. And here on the podcast, longtime endurance coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford and author and cycling coach Molly Herford are helping you lead your best active, adventurous life. Every week, we talk with professional athletes, health and fitness experts, and of course, real-life consummate athletes. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back. Peter, I see you're uh, you're you're ready to ride today. Yes, I am wearing my full protective cycling equipment. Indoors. Indoors for podcasting, but we are here. We are back. We are excited for today's episode. It is a big one. I was I was quite nervous. Yeah, I would say uh, this is like among like the pantheon of like rock star guests that we've had on. Um, do, do you want to tell them or should I? Today we have Joe Friel. So exciting. Uh, so anyone who, you know, has been in triathlon or cycling since, I mean, gosh, like what, mid nineties yeah. probably knows the name Joe Friel, or at least would recognize the titles of his books, including the triathlete training Bible and the cyclist training Bible. Mountain bikers training Bible. Yeah. Which have been updated, you know, over and over again over the years. Uh, yeah. I mean, I remember when I first got into cycling and triathlon, like I have one of his oldest. Uh, yeah, you have like one of the first editions of the triathlon. Yeah. Yeah. And to get him on the podcast talking about his latest book was just so exciting, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. He's just been doing it for a long time, right? Like one of the classic Joe Friel sto- stories is like him getting like one of the early power meters and no one knowing anything. Like it just like someone created this like you know, sensor that told you power, but no one really knew similar to how running is right now with running power. It's sort of just like, well, this is a number and uh, I don't know what you do with it. Right. And what's it all mean? And it was also clunky back then. And some of those stories, like he, one of my favorite ones is also he, he like early, you know, before the internet and stuff, you know, there was this coaching and, you know, for triathlon, for cycling, for running, whatever, um, sort of just starting up and he was on the front edge of that, but he was sending, uh, training plans like via mail, like putting it, post on it, sending it, and then like the person would send it back. Um, you know, obviously probably with some phone support. So he's been doing it for a long time, and I definitely uh, am in debt to his books, his his teachings, his blog over the year. And I mean, like as far as consummate athletes, you know, in the episode we're talking about when he started, you know, he's running back in like the sixties. Yeah. And he's still getting after it today. St- still training. And not only that, like we have to say he's been sort of on the pulse of like what's cool and what's like new in cycling and running and triathlon. He was, you know, he did the paleo for athletes. Book. Yeah, he was on paleo early. Him and uh, Professor Cordain, who was like, again, on the front edge of paleo stuff. Uh, they did like a paleo diet for athletes book. With a, There's, I think, a second or third edition out of that. Can I blame Joe Friel for your sweet potato obsession? Uh, that's probably a Rob Wolf thing, but um, no, I still think his his paleo book was actually probably one of the most sensical, sensical, sensible, sensible um, paleo books that were out there because it's you know for endurance athletes, so it like allowed for more carbohydrate and and you know using some of these quote unquote neolithic foods. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I still think his framework was actually like probably the best thing. Uh, one of the best books at least out there on it yeah and he put out fast after 50 also which is, a classic yeah you know, a lot of listeners really like that and i think again just like some different 
takes on you know how you could train for endurance you know at any age as an adult right so and I we do again, talk about that a lot in this episode so i'm super excited about that but we start the episode talking about his latest book which again you're just like how is this man still so on the pulse on the pulse yeah uh but it's it's right inside it's your your training bible basically for indoor cycling yeah and which I mean, is obviously like a big deal huge right now yeah. and if you think about like the publishing like world he would have had to start on this like way before three three years he actually said this was one of the hardest books to get sort of written and going and he talks about another guest we've had on the show uh, his co-author jim ruppberg who we've had on for the time crunch cyclist a couple years back jim was actually one of our like earlier guests i actually remember interviewing him in a van in california because we were at a training camp and we couldn't get signal in the house so we had to do some crazy stuff to get that interview done. We were outside oh, of a we gym. Were in, I was like, we were in a van with Jim Rutberg? No, no. We were in Solvang, oh. California. <laughs> no, I remember now. Outside of a I like, gym. I don't remember sitting in a van with Jim Rutberg. No, we were outside of a gym. We were in a van. Using yes. the gym's Wi-Fi to talk to Jim Rutberg to get that interview done because we were so invested in talking to the guy who wrote The Time Crunched Cyclist. So anyway, uh, yeah, today's episode, super exciting for us. I feel like everyone is going to get a ton out of it, whether you're an indoor trainer or... Yeah, we definitely cover, we sort of do indoor cycling for a bit and then we move to just sort of questions I've wanted to ask Joe Frail for 20 years. Yeah, I think we might have to have him back on at some point I didn't soon. get to ask all my questions. Yeah. So. All right, well, without further ado, everyone, enjoy this episode with Joe Friel. Head over to consummateathlete.com to... Uh, get the links to all of his books and sort of some of our links to past episodes that we reference in this. And yeah, enjoy the episode. You have this latest book, so we certainly want to talk about this this indoor book. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the latest one and sort of why why even differentiate and talk about indoor cycling? Yeah, uh, well, the book idea started for me about three years ago, actually, so long before COVID. Um, I realized, as I was setting up my indoor trainer, realized as I was doing that, there, there wasn't anything on the market out there for people who ride indoors. And so that started thinking. And so the next thing I began to do was just jot down notes on what a book on, on that topic should include. And it, it took a long time from that point forward to get the whole thing put together. And it was the longest process I ever went through to get a book to market. It was just a, a long drill. I, one of the things I had to come up with was a was a co-author, somebody who really understood the details of all the apps and all the equipment. Because I'll, I'll have to admit, I, I, well, I do it. I don't really know all the ins and outs of all this stuff. And so I found the perfect guy, Jim Rutberg. He, he writes books. He's a, he's a cyclist. Uh, uh, he's a coach. He's uh, been in it for 20 years, and he rides indoors a lot using Zwift and all the stuff. So I brought him on board, and once we got him on board, then the thing began to really roll. And so in, in the midst of all this, the virus hits, and I was like flabbergasted. You know, the, all of a sudden, a lot of people were riding indoors. And I was wishing I'd thought of this like four years ago instead of three years ago. Right. <laughs> so I couldn't have had the book on, on the shelves in time to, for everybody doing indoor training. But, you know, it, it's it's coming out now. So we're we're happy with it. And uh, the timing is pretty good. But uh, it just was a long process to get here. So you're still in Arizona, right? I am, yeah. Okay. So you're riding indoors because of the heat? Or why do you ride indoors? Um 
Well, uh, I, I used to live in Phoenix, Phoenix area, Scottsdale, actually. We lived there for like what, 17 years. And there it was definitely riding to avoid the heat. Uh, and occasionally when it rains in Phoenix, it's like being poured out of a bucket. So those were days when you'd ride inside. And uh, then we recently, about two years ago, we moved to Sedona, which is a small town in northern, the mountains of northern Arizona, not too far from the Grand Canyon. So we're way up there. It's a small town, 10,000 people, but it's, it's, it's cycling Mecca. It is one of the capitals, especially mountain biking. It's one of the capitals in the world for mountain biking. It's it's beautiful location. It's amazing to see just the it's red mountains every place that stick up out of the bottom of the valley, and, and it's just a beautiful place. And so here, you know, it, it's much cooler than in Scottsdale. It's you know it's like 4,500 feet. So it's probably like it's in the neighborhood of 12 to 25 degrees cooler here than in Scottsdale any time of the year. But it also snows here sometimes. Um, we got a couple of heavy snowfalls last year. We got 20, 20 inches one day last year. Wow. And so that knocked out riding in the roads for a few days. And, and uh, so consequently, now I ride inside because of usually winter weather as opposed to summer weather. So it, it can go either way. And I know one of the things you talk a lot about um, is is sort of consistency. I guess we could talk, call it that, but just this idea of like frequent training and like keeping your training going. And you've talked about it. I think the, what I recall is like a blog about you traveling a lot and stuff, and how that affected your training a lot. Maybe that was actually in the Fast After Fifty book. Um, so is that how you think about the indoor trainer a lot? Is like sort of keeping training going? Yeah, it's it's well, it's it keeps training going, and for a lot of people anymore, quite honestly, it's become their main way of participating in events, races, and group rides, and and just to get a workout in whenever they want to with a controlled environment. There's all kinds of benefits to doing it, but but yeah, it's um, it's it's become a, a very interesting phenomenon to see this taking place with people riding indoors, and and interestingly enough, because the pandemic. They're also the bike sales are through the roof. People are using bicycles where they've been using in the past, been using uh, uh, subways and and buses and so forth to get from point A to point B to go to work, whatever. Now bicycles are being used. So I think we're going to see because of the pandemic, we're going to see a lot of people becoming enamored with the sport. And we're going to see a lot more cyclists, a lot more triathletes, especially and that's good for, for all endurance sports. Once you get people started in one sport, they're willing to try other sports. So so it's, it's actually, it's not good and because obvious, for obvious reasons, but for the sport of cycling long-term, I think it's actually a pretty good thing. And, and for all endurance sports long-term, I think it's a good thing. So very interesting situation, very interesting time we're going through right now. For sure. Um, I have to ask, I mean, if you started this book three years ago, the technology has evolved so much in the last couple of years as far as indoor trainers and all of the apps and stuff. How was that as far as the writing process goes? I feel like it must have been one of the hardest editing situations ever. Well, yeah, we found even while we were writing the book that things were changing. So you're right. It, it was a it was a real uh, uh, challenge to keep up with technology. So we admit there, there are things that we just had to go to press someday. We couldn't keep changing things forever. We had to go to press. And so there are things in there now that are, 
are actually becoming outdated all even though the book has just been we just finished writing it back in oh, about i suppose about june or so we finished writing the book and there are things changing now uh that we've already talked about in the book so but that's the reason why i brought jim ruttenberg on jim this is this is jim's thing mm-hmm. he is really quite knowledgeable in all this and he's really into it so he's kind of keeping has kept up with all the details and did the great job of trying to keep us on track with all the changes in technology taking place so so that was he was a, a instrumental uh, a important part of this entire process yeah jim's awesome we had him on a few years ago back when he wrote the uh, the time crunched cyclist yeah he cool. sure. yeah yeah so you guys are together now on that and you can sort of bring those those two uh great wealth of knowledge together so i'm excited for this uh i'm wondering too like you must find or or part of the influence might be like there's there's i find with clients there's some clients that have come to cycling or at least training for cycling through indoor cycling and then there's the cyclists who i guess the more traditional where they like were training outside and then have come inside and so you almost have these two different user groups right like what is this indoors thing all about how do you even train on an indoor thing um do you find that there's almost like two camps of users it's becoming that way. Uh, there are now people who really are, um, you know, indoor training and racing is really their thing. Uh, that didn't happen. And, you know, that, that was in a very small numbers, even just a year ago. But now there's a large number of people who see e-racing as being the focus of uh, what they're doing. Whereas it used to be the other way around entirely. You know, hardly anybody ever trained indoors when they could be outside. And so consequently, everybody saw the indoor trainers just is just a temporary thing you were on because of that we talked about before, the weather. But that's changing now. There are people who are really, really into indoor training. So don't know what that's gonna mean for the future, but uh, races are now becoming, you know, that way uh, across the board. So who knows what's gonna come out of all this, very interesting. Yeah, it will be interesting to see. I mean, esports in general, just like how that'll go. Um, you know, football and concussions, I know, is one thing. So they're talking about like how video games and esports all like, you know, well, the different like liabilities of that. So who knows? That's our, our guess, right. I guess. Um, ha- have you yourself, like, do you use Zwift Race or, or race on a platform? No, I don't. In fact, I, I don't race at all anymore. I, I, I put racing in uh, 20. 13. Okay. Um, I, I was, I've been through a lot of sports. I was a runner back in the seventies and into the eighties and early nineties, I was still running, but at about 2006, I realized I was getting bone on bone in my right knee. Uh, and my physical therapist, you know, I had a long conversation, which convinced me I need to quit running. So at that point, I became a road cyclist entirely. But, it, you know, back in the 80s, I was riding a bike originally just because it was an alternative when I got injured running. But eventually I started doing bike races and then I did triathlons and duathlons and throw. So through the 80s and 90s into the early 2000s, I was doing multi-sport racing. But then I, I had to quit swimming because I had a bad crash, two bad crashes and broken my my scapula and my clavicle twice on the left side and so consequently i've got no range of motion in my left shoulder so i couldn't swim freestyle anymore so that was the end of my swimming so that's when i became a full-time a cyclist road racer and uh that was going well 
until I had my, really my last, hopefully last crash in 2014, January of 2014. I've raced the 2013 season. I had, it was a really bad crash, seven bones broken, concussion. I was in the hospital for a week, or actually 10 days. Oh, wow. Uh, I, had, I had problems that grew out of that that lasted until the following October, so like 10 months later, before all the, the problems went away. And I, during that time, so many things changed in my life, not only just with fitness and training, but also with my business. Uh, I started traveling a lot for, for, for training peaks. I was on the road through two, three times a month gone for three to seven days at a time. And I couldn't train anymore consequently because of that, like I used to. So I knew I wasn't gonna be able to race and, and be respectable. respectable. So I decided at that point to uh, just quit racing. And now I just train for fun and, and still, I still enjoy, I still do exactly the same workouts. Right. But as I don't race anymore, but my race is my Sunday morning group ride. That's my race. Right. So right. the world has changed for me considerably. Well, and I think I have a lot of clients are, are, you know, most of their season, if not all their season is directed around just being, you know, as you say, training because they like it. And then, you know, they do want to get it on the group ride and, and put it to their buddies on the weekend or, or whatever, right? Hey, they put it to me in my case. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Well, it's good to have friends like that, I guess. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering... This is a broad question, I guess, but when you go, when you're riding indoors, like what are the big things that come to mind? You know, why, why did you feel like you needed to explain how to ride indoors? Like what are the reasons that make indoors different than outdoors or normal biking? Well, there's, there are some things that are, that are the same between them. Ob obvious things. The two most obvious things are your aerobic capacity and your anaerobic threshold or lactate threshold, however you want to talk about these things those things can be improved no matter what you do. And they're two of the keys to high performance is a high VO2 max and a very high per, uh, lactate threshold as a percentage of VO2 max. Those things are, are instrumental to your performance. That's, that is, that's at least two thirds of your fitness is those two things right there. And you can improve both of them either indoors or outdoors. There really is no difference. You can, you can improve them both quite nicely. Your body, in this case, doesn't know the difference between the two. However, there's a third thing, which we don't talk about hardly ever that has to do with fitness. It's called economy. How much energy do you use to, to move in your sport? To, for example, ride your bike at a given speed or a given power output. How much energy does it, does it take for you to do that? Compare right. that with somebody else who rides the very same speed on the very same course and so forth. How much energy do they use? The person who uses the least amount of energy is is more economical, just like your car. It's like miles per gallon. You know, it's exactly the same thing. We don't ever talk about this, and this one is the one of the three things that is really impacted by riding indoors in a negative way. Interesting. But it depends on yeah, but it depends on the equipment you have. Also, the first thing, which is obvious is if you have a flywheel on your indoor trainer, that makes your cycling more like the road. So in other words, economy is gonna be more like the economy you would have if you were on the road because the flywheel. Without a flywheel, if you have the old fashioned, what we might call dumb trainers now, we have smart trainers, and so we have dumb trainers also, I suppose. If you have a dumb trainer, doesn't have a, doesn't have a flywheel, what happens is when your pedal stroke is at 
the 12 o'clock and six o'clock positions, the wheel, when you're outdoors, the wheel keeps on moving because of momentum. But when you're on a trainer that has resistance on that wheel, it immediately starts to slow down. So you have to overcome that in pedaling. So you, what you have to learn to do is to pedal differently indoors than way, the way most of us pedal outdoors. You have to apply force to the pedal earlier, say around 1230. If you start applying force to the pedal, downward force to the pedal at 1230, instead of say 130, your economy will be pretty good. But if you're used to riding on the road and you're kind of a, a square pedaler, you know, you, you, you start pedaling it, you start a downstroke at two o'clock and it ends at four o'clock sort of thing. It's kind of like, you know, pedaling squares like this. Right. If you're doing that and you come in, you come inside, you'll find your performance is, hor is horrible. If your power meter, your power numbers will be much lower than they were on the road. So in that case, the athlete has to learn to pedal in a different way. You have to start the downstroke earlier. 1230. In fact, the best cyclists do that. Uh, there have been studies done on this, and what they show is the, the, the most economical cyclists, regardless of inside or outside, start the downstroke very early in the stroke, like around 1230. Right. They're already starting to apply downward force on the pedal. The, the least economical athletes, cyclists, don't start applying force to the pedals until sometime after 2 o'clock. Hmm. And so consequently, they're very uneconomical. So indoors, that's a big thing. There are other things too that happen indoors in terms of economy. Uh, when you ride your bike on the road, your bike actually has some movement left to right around the central pivot point as you're riding. You're not aware of it, but that's what's happening. The bike is doing this. You're very aware of it if you sprint. If you sprint, your bike goes like this. You become very aware of this movement of your bike left to right. When you climb, you get out of the saddle to climb. The same thing, you become more aware of this left to right movement of your bike. Well, that same thing is happening when you're sitting on the saddle, just pedaling along at a hard out, high effort, high power output. There's a little bit of torsion, a little bit of movement going on your bike like this. When you're indoors on a trainer, most trainers, again, this are exceptions, most trainers lock the bike in so the bike does not move. Instead, what happens is your body moves side to side. That screws up the economy again. So now you're spending more energy indoors than you would have spent outdoors. And the bike also has torsion built into it. So the bike torques right. as you ride it around the bottom bracket. And you're not aware of that torque. And you know, unless you have a really flexible bike or you stand on pedals or something like that, you become more aware of it then. But indoors, but it still happens. There's still a tiny amount of torque going on, even when you're riding hard, you know, flat, sitting in the saddle. And that doesn't happen when you lock the bike into most kinds of trainers. So, so the, and I could keep going on on these sorts of things. So there's lots of stuff that has to do with the economy that's different between indoors and outdoors. But the big two, VO2 max and anaerobic or lactate threshold are the same. They stay the same. It's the economy is that suffers. So athletes, what they'll often find is when they start doing tests indoors, like they want to find their FTP indoors because they couldn't get outside and then they were supposed to do it, and they get numbers that are just appalled by it. It's because of the economy. The economy is not the same as outside. So you can probably expect, I say probably because there are, not, there are trainers on the, on the market right now which are much better than even just a year ago. 
probably what's going to happen is you're going to find your numbers are smaller. Your power numbers are, are lower indoors than outdoors. Right, which is hard. It's yeah, it's, it's hard to get used to that. It's, it's, everybody thinks they ought to be seeing the same numbers, but unfortunately it doesn't, doesn't work that way. Yeah, which is okay. I think you just need to look at it as like, what is the, the strain on the system, right? Like if the strains. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Do you do anything like, I, I've always been very hesitant to have people stand and, you know, do sprints inside, A, because of the frame stress, but then B, just because it's a poor movement. And, and I tend to be biased towards like the movement and the skill. Do you have, like, what do you think about that? Would, would you limit how much standing sprint or standing climbing someone might do indoors? Yeah, it depends on their equipment. Again, there's some some uh, uh, some devices, some machines that are pretty stable, but I would suggest you not stand on the pedals, uh, yeah. especially sprinting. Sprinting does make a lot of this side to side movement going on. In fact, in the book, when we talk about sprinting, we always suggest you not stand up, stay do seated sprints if you're doing oh, sprints. Great. Don't stand up because because the risk is relatively high. You know, you don't want to have to start. You know, I I used to when I was Training back and was coaching back in the 80s. I had a lot of local athletes where I lived in Colorado, and I would have them come to my house to be tested on indoor trainer. And uh, I soon realized that the trainer was very wobbly when they got out of the saddle. So I, I took a sheet of plywood and fastened the trainer to this sheet of plywood so that the thing wouldn't wobble. Yeah. Uh, which had a, so it's important, you know. It created its own problems for us, but uh, that was the way to stop the thing from falling. I was afraid somebody was going to fall over. You, some of these people just get extremely motivated. You know, I get the coach there, and I'm trying to get the biggest numbers I can. All of a sudden, they're going left to right yeah. like this, and and I'm, I'm like, oh my god, we're on the verge of a catastrophe. This person's going to crash on an indoor bike. Hmm. So I'm very skeptical of trying to do that on on indoor trainer. So I'm curious, sort of in line with your economy thoughts, like is it? Uh, I guess it would be perhaps economical as far as time and, and stuff like weather independent, you know, or, or maybe it's location, but like people, there's some people, you know, some triathletes, uh, popular YouTube channels and stuff where they're doing most of their training indoors because it's like more perfect, right? Uh, quote unquote. Um, do you have thoughts? Like, is there a time for that, a space for that? What, what are you thinking around? Like, you know, all things equal, you're in a beautiful you know, Tucson, Arizona, and you're going to still train indoors because it's more perfect. There's not like traffic lights or something. Yeah, traffic lights is certainly one of those reasons why. Some 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 places I've lived, it's been hard to find uh, a, a course that I could use like for intervals right. that's safe, uh, that doesn't have stop signs and, and uh, heavy traffic and uh, intersections and all this stuff. And so when you train indoors... You can eliminate all those worries. There, there's not going to be anything like that at all. I've also coached athletes who had to, you know, if they had to do a hill repeats, they would have to ride their bike 30 minutes to get to the closest hill. And so you wind up with an hour of just getting to and from the hill, um, things like that. So you can you can go indoors and you can eliminate a lot of these variables that we run into um, on the road, dogs chasing you and. You know, uh, I, I don't know about that. Actually, our dog is much worse when we're in on the treadmill or the trainer <laughs> yeah. than he is. Yeah, the, the indoor dog you have to worry about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hmm. So, so you're thinking like, it, but is, I, I don't know. I, I guess it's to each their own, right? It depends on the goal. I find sometimes that people are too quick to do that, but then missing it on like the cycling, right? And, and sometimes I'll say like the indoor trainer is like 
uh, a batting cage, right? Like it's not baseball. Like you're you're not having all the elements of baseball, but it's it's sort of like the batting cage. You get a lot of reps, but you're missing out on these things like you know the curveball, the variables of having fans in the cl- the the crowd, right? Um, what do you That's think? That's true. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of things like that. Um, we could, for example, we could look at cornering skills. Right. If you're indoors, you never have to corner. So what if what happens if you only ride indoors? You finally go outside six months later and ride. All of a sudden, you realize going around corners is really challenging. All of a sudden, right? Why well, we saw a About lot the, of crashes in all of the, the tour. tours and races <laughs> this season. Yeah. <laughs> and that'd be, be the same thing for group riding. You ride in a group, uh, and you never you never do that indoors. You know, if you're in an e race, you're not going to crash. And so you don't really, so the world is not the same as when you're in a group on the road and you're riding shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of people. That's now different. And it's kind of scary if you haven't done it uh, for a long, long time. So, and there's, and there's all these other things. There's like the position on the time trial bike. You know, if you're doing an e-race, a time trial e-race, and you don't have to get in an aero position, you can get in the most powerful position. You can stand up if you want, you can do anything you want. But we know on the road you couldn't do that, so so it doesn't. It's not real in many cases uh, what you're doing. You know, if you're in a in a road race, you, in on, in the real world outdoors, you can look around at the other riders and see. You can tell by their expressions and what their breathing is like and their pedaling technique and all the stuff. You can get an idea how they're responding to the to the pressure of the race. E racing, there's none of that going on. As far as you know, the guy who is right next to you is riding much easier than you are because you can't tell. There's no way of knowing what's going on around you. So all the world that you're used to seeing on the road is dramatically different than it used to be. And the races are different. The races aren't conducted the same way either indoors as outdoors. Indoor race, before the gun goes off, everybody starts bringing their power up to the highest level possible. So when the gun does go off, you burst out. It's like a supercross race. Yeah. And that doesn't happen in the real world. You know, they start fast, but it doesn't start a thing like that. Nobody's pedaling at full speed but as the as the gun goes off. So it's just a different world altogether, and it takes a lot of getting used to. Okay. Um, similar question. These ones maybe are quicker, but uh, one of the ones that, you know, often gets brought up, and I remember, I think it's the old Carmichael book actually had some sort of, like, equations for, like, how long we're different. Do you have any thoughts as far as, like, indoor, you know, outdoors, I was going to do a two-hour ride. Like, how long should I do indoors? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, let's, let's, I, I'm not from, I don't know if all your, your, uh, viewers will be knowledgeable of things like training stress score, TSS. Sure. Yeah, go for it. Uh, that, that's the best way of talking about this because TSS is a combination of, of duration and intensity. So these two things are wrapped into one number. So we can express how hard the workout was in terms of both of these things in one number. Whereas otherwise, without this, we talk about how long was the workout and how hard was the workout. But that becomes very confusing because what if you do a, a three-hour workout at a very low intensity? How does that compare with a, an hour and a half workout at a very high intensity? You know, what, what's, how does this, what does this mean to you? Well, TSS resolves all that because it gives you just one number. I won't go into details of how we get the number, but the number is basically just telling you that how hard the workout was. And a number could be anywhere from something relatively low, like 20 or 30, up to a couple of hundred or 300 or even more, depending on some people's doing ultra event, ultra uh, cycling events or ultra running events. It could be very, very high numbers. So that number tells us how hard the workout was. 
Well, one thing I can almost assure you of is that when you ride indoors compared to the outdoors, your TSS per hour will be higher indoors than outdoors. Right. Because there is no coasting. Yeah, and you see like twenty five percent of some people's rides, right? Like you can see like when the when they're coasting, right? The cadence is zero. It'd be like you often exactly. see that, right? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So when you're inside, that's not happening. When you're inside and you're on the bike, you're pedaling. Uh, so that so that always means you're always producing intensity. It may not be high, but you're always producing intensity. Whereas when you're coasting, intensity is zero on the road. Mm. So we've got some intensity versus zero on the road, right. some intensity inside. So you'd say, so, is higher. so you might say like, okay, you know, Peter, you do your two hour endurance ride on the weekend and it's usually what? A hundred TSS, say 50 an hour. That would maybe be high, right. but say it's 80. Um, so then I would just try and make 80 on the indoor trainer then, and it might take less time. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. Right. Cool. So now we've got a number you can shoot for instead of trying to figure out what does it mean to be riding indoors versus outdoors and all this kind of stuff. Is it 90% or do I use a two thirds farm? It's, it's all this stuff that people are talking about for decades around the internet. What, what do I do? Now the solution is if you want to do an 80 TSS workout, you just do an 80 TSS workout inside. It'll more than likely take you less time than it would have on the road. How much less? I don't know. It just depends on a number of other variables, how motivated you are and all kinds of stuff, how fatigued you are and all that. Right. But you can certainly potentially produce greater TSS per hour as higher indoors. Okay. Uh, next one is erg versus manual mode, which is maybe a big <laughs> one. And you can keep it brief like if you like to, if there's a simple, you know, your thoughts it on it. Like is erg worth using at any point? Um, I think people are fairly familiar with the concept, uh, but go for it. Yeah. Basically, what Erg does is it 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 pedals you. Uh, the bike is set up to do a certain wattage. It's programmed to do a certain thing for a certain duration. For example, you may be doing intervals, and the interval is supposed to be done at 200 watts for for five minutes, whatever. And so, and then you're supposed to recover, you know, at at 50 watts for two and a half minutes, and this gets repeated several times. And so what happens with the um, with the erg is you start pedaling and the machine starts, it puts you at 200 watts. It, all of a sudden the power is 200, you gotta keep up with it, you gotta keep going. And when it gets the time for the, for the recovery, power drops immediately and you have, but you still keep pedaling that, that, that same intensity, the lower intensity, 80 watts or whatever it may be. When the next interval starts, the, the effort becomes very high again so the, the machine forces you to keep working hard to stay with it. That's the erg mode. The, the other way of doing this to think about it is just the opposite, that the rider decides when to start the interval and decides how, I, how does this feel to me? Is this really what I want to do, 200 watts, or do I want to do 190 watts or, or 220 watts? You know, so, it, so the rider now decides. There's advantages and disadvantages both ways. Um, one is that people just have a hard time sometimes getting warmed up. And so having something like that, it specifies numbers for certain durations means you may not be able to keep up with it at first, but later on it becomes more to your liking. So you need to, that, that just means you need to rearrange how the workout is created. 
Whereas when you're outdoors, you can, you can, you've got complete control over how you do it. You can decide to stop the five minute interval at four minutes if you want to, or you can reduce, reduce the, the power output by 10%. Right. Because it just doesn't feel right. And so you're totally in control in on that one, but not on the herb mode. Right. So which do you use yourself? <laughs> I seldom use the herb mode. It's almost always uh, me in charge. Yeah. Uh, and do you think that's because, because I'm similar, do you think it's because that's how you were brought up, so to speak? Um, like, I, I don't know. Like, to me, it, it makes complete sense that I would, like, have to warm up into intervals or maybe I want to really start hard, but then I'm blowing up and I have to shorten it and lengthen the recovery. Um, I don't know. Do you think it's how you were brought up? Yeah, I do. I, I've been riding, you know, for 40 years, roughly. And uh, it's just always been that way. I've, and when I've done whatever type of ride I was doing, it was a ride that came out of my head and that I, you know, translated into my effort. And uh, so I controlled the effort. And there are some days when it, you know, it just doesn't feel right what I decide to do. So I back off. You know, I do intervals a couple of times a week, even though I don't race anymore, still do them. And some days it just feels like, you know, that's just a little bit harder than I want to go today. And there's other days it feels like, man, I really feel good today. I can do just a little bit more than I thought I could do. So, you know, that's, I, I like to be in charge, I guess. So I, I, I do that. I do it that way. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm wondering, so last question on indoor, but it's going to lead into another question more just general. Um, hopefully it's just some of my list here. And I think Molly has a couple for some articles and stuff too. Uh, indoors, do you, what are your thoughts? Like I, I tr tend to be hesitant pushing people much over 90 minutes very often indoors, just from like a motivation, you know, I guess burnout. Do you, do you have any opinions on that? Like for the general people, you know, obviously there's individual cases and preparing i'm but. also gonna add in the butt issue there's that's sure just all these factors do you have any thoughts on like a maximum like typical maximum or or minimum effective dose for indoors yeah it's, it's a big question it really comes down to to who are we talking about um you know if you got a, a pure novice you're talking about you know an hour indoors would be a gigantic achievement yeah so in that case i might have to do 30 minutes they might do an hour on the road but they might do 30 minutes indoors whereas if i have what i call an intermediate athlete somebody's in the first three years but they're beyond the novice stage uh this person can easily probably do two to three hour rides on the road but i, I would probably cut that back by maybe a, a fourth to a third inside just because i know uh the athlete and how they feel about um, how experienced they are with training and how much they ride inside typically. If they don't ride inside very often because they've, you know, they love riding on the road and they've always got good weather, but occasionally they get forced inside by bad weather or something like that, then I will keep it shorter. How much shorter is hard to say. It kind of depends on who I'm talking about. Then there's the advanced athletes who will do anything you ask them to do, they will do it uh, with no questions asked. In fact, they want to do more than what you told them to right. ask them to do. Uh, in that case, you know, you almost have to make them back off a little bit because you know the TSS per hour is going to be high. So instead of going for, you know, instead of riding for for three hours, let's ride for 150 TSS. And, and this is the intensity we're using for that. And so now we aim at that. And so that's, that de decides for them what the duration is going to be. So a different number we're aiming at. So that, that would be the advanced athlete. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
So similar question, I recall a blog, and I may be completely misrepresenting it, you may not remember the blog too, you have so many, I wouldn't blame you. But I seem to recall something where you talked about, you know, once you go past maybe three hours or somewhere, there's like a decreasing returns, you know, the risk increases. Do you recall that? I could not find it and I tried. <laughs> yes, it's in, I think it's in my, both my turning Bibles, I talk about that. Okay. Well, we might, we might think about a, uh, an XY axis, you know what an XY axis is? We got the the Y axis and the X axis. And if we think about this chart and we put duration on the X axis, so this is duration, one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, so forth. And on this, on the vertical, the, the Y axis, we make this low, medium, high. And then we're going to graph on this, we're going to graph the reward of the workout. Right and the risk of the workout. The risk means the potential for injury, burnout, illness, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So the the, the reward uh, would be kind of a, a relatively steep slope at first, and if, but someplace out here it would begin to, uh, to, to, plat, to plateau. It has to at some and point. Then yeah. Yeah, if, and then it would start to actually kind of drop it a little bit. So in other words, you could write, I can't, and I can't tell you what the number is because it depends on who, again, we're talking sure. about, the novice, intermediate, and advanced what, what athlete. And what state they're in, sure. Exactly right, where they are in the season, all kinds of stuff. So uh, all I can say is that there's going to be an increase in, in the uh, reward of the workout. You're going to keep getting more and more benefits the longer the workout becomes until it doesn't become more rewarding. Right. At some point, it's going to quit doing that. It's going to go the other way. At the same time, there's a risk curve which is going on this very same chart. It's very low at first. It's almost zero when you first start the workout. But as the workout progresses, it begins to slope up. It right. starts going like this. And at some point, it becomes really steep. Right. So so this would be like if you were doing Race Across America, you're going to have some sort of downside, like if you're riding yeah, for okay. hundreds of hours or something, right? Exactly right. Yeah, for every one of us, if we're riding, if we're doing a long workout, a long ride, these two things are happening in the background. And the good athlete knows what their body is experiencing and knows when they really have achieved both things. When these two things cross, when we've got the reward decreasing and, and the risk increasing and they cross, this is the point you want to stop is when these two have become to the same point in time. And how far is that out there? I absolutely do not know. I cannot okay. tell you. I find out by, by experience, you know, when you coach an athlete, that's one of the things you're trying to figure out is what, mm. what, can, they, what can they handle. Okay. Now, somewhat related to this, somewhat related to indoors, um, I, I was, I'm curious, you know, you were, t we're talking about like how long you can ride indoors, just trying to be careful with pushing that too long, risk-reward. I'm wondering, do you ever use like double days or like combining strength training with that? Um, and any feelings on like who might be a good candidate for that type of work, like double day type thing? Yeah, I, I think that's probably better for the advanced athlete and probably is going to be best uh, done during the uh, the base period, like two workouts a day. Right. Uh, for, 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 for Not for a multi-sport athlete, a triathlete, so forth. They're used to doing two, two workouts a day. We're talking about a runner or a cyclist who does two runs in a day or two bike rides in a day. That's been shown to be an effective way of building endurance in that one sport is to do two-a-days 
in the sport. So morning workout and afternoon workout, for example, I'd be very highly uh, uh, cautious with having an athlete do that. It would be the sort of thing where we would try it with small numbers. We're going to try it with an hour in the morning, one, you know, one day on like a Saturday morning. We're going to go for a one-hour ride in the morning, a one-hour ride in the afternoon, just to see how things go, how we, how the athlete deals with that. They're used to doing two-hour workouts, so they, should, they, should, they can handle that. And then we'll see how that progresses. Maybe we'll get to the point eventually where the athlete is doing two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon, or three hours in the morning, an hour and a half in the afternoon, or, or whatever. But again, I would I would limit how often I do that. It may only be done uh, once, twice, maybe at the most three times in a week for an athlete. That again comes down to who are we talking about? You know, a highly advanced athlete, an elite athlete, it would not be a big deal to do that several times a week. In fact, they, they do it several times a week. You take the Kenyan runners, not a big deal at all. They can do that at any time they want to. Take somebody who's a novice runner, and that's that's a that's a disaster in the making right there to have to do two workouts the same day. So it really depends gigantically, as with most things, it depends on who are we talking about. And uh, there are advantages, but you just need to be cautious with it. You also mentioned uh, strength training com combined with an endurance workout. And I would have athletes do that all the time because it's different, a little bit different now. We're now, we're not stressing the same systems anymore. Um, we're, we're doing an endurance workout, for example, a run in the morning, and then later in the day we're doing a, a strength workout in the gym. I think that's that's okay, um, but we still need to be cautious with how much, how long is the morning workout, and how intense is the afternoon strength session. So the idea is we always build into all these things which are beneficial, you know, high reward but high risk. We always start very conservatively with all of these things so that we don't get to this point where these two cross, where they, they're always separated from each other, so we, we're not taking risks. And that, that's really the, the challenge of the self-coached athlete and the coach. The coach has got to figure that out for every athlete. But I trust coaches more with that than I do the athletes. Athletes are, are, are very hesitant to say they can't do something or shouldn't do something. They're very hesitant to say that. They believe they can do anything, anytime, whenever they want. Coaches realize that to get the athlete injured, things are lost. So, or they get sick, or they get overtrained, or all these things. So, coaches are always, hopefully, good coaches anyway. Good coaches are always conservative, always hold back just a little bit of the athlete. That's that's the main job. Mm -hmm. Well, it strikes me that you're almost looking at this as like. You know, I think the athlete probably could do a lot of these things, right? Like once they could perform it, but it's, you know, we're looking at like, are they adapting to it? Right. Which is almost like staying on this side of, as you say, where those, those lines cross. Exactly. I was a runner back in the seventies. Um, and I can recall, um, doing a marathon in the morning and coming back that afternoon and putting another five or six miles on the road. And uh, I had more injuries than man is supposed to have. And uh, as I look back, I can see all kinds of reasons for it. And that, that's just one of the reasons there. It was one of the dumb things I did. But I, I was new to the sport. And I, right. I didn't know what my body could handle. And I, the way I found out was I got, you know, all these injuries over the course of time. And I began to realize these are all coming from my stupid decisions. I need to be smarter about my training. That, that's what it came down to. And we all go through that. We all think we can do more than what we're 
capable of doing. Every athlete believes I can do more than what the coach told me to do. And probably they could, but the coach has got a good reason for holding on the reins. There's a good reason for that. Mm-hmm. I feel like the most dangerous is the triathletes who shift to running or cycling. And I've been both of those things because I feel like as a triathlete, you're like, of course I do double days. That's just how this works. And then you get into running and you're like, all oh, right, shouldn't run twice a day, every day. Not the same thing as it turns out. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No question. Uh, yeah. That's, all, that's a hard lesson to learn, but we all learn it eventually because something bad happens. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, so speaking of something bad eventually happening, um, you know, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about is this idea of um, running and cycling and triathloning through the decades. And obviously you have fast after 50. Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of give us some sort of best tips for generally just how you would shift into cycling and running in your 40s and 50s and also maybe for the 20s and 30 year olds out there what they could be thinking about now to be getting ready for that point in life yeah when you're 20 20 something years old um you kind of think you you've got the world is yours you can do really anything you want and you're pretty much right you can make all kinds of you can eat anything you want and do a race the next day and you'll be fine 50 years old, you're not going to do that. You, you eat a lot of junk food the day before a race, you know it the day of the race. Your body begins to tell you things. I can recall when I was in college on the track team, uh, our coach had one workout, and we did it every day, five days a week, uh, except if we had a track meet to go to. And, we, and by the way, back then, this is back in this is a long, this is a long, long time ago. It's back in the 60s. Back then, nobody trained on the weekends. Even Roger Bannister, who broke the world's record for the four-minute mile, you know, he didn't train the weekends. Nobody trained the weekends back then. Hmm. Weekends was were time off. You did not train on the weekends. So you trained five days a week, get Saturday, Sunday off, you started again on Monday. Well, we, we did the same workout five days a week in the track team. And it was, I always called it intervals till you puke. All we'd do is we'd, he'd call us after we all warmed up and been working on our skills and all this sort of stuff. He'd bring us over to where he was in, in the – bleachers with a stopwatch and a and around his neck and a, a whistle you know and a, and a and a bottle of coke and he'd call us over to the bleachers and uh, we all knew what was going to happen he'd say okay get ready so we'd all go down on the track and he, it was a cinder track so he'd draw a line to track with his foot and uh, that's the start and stop line right there and he'd blow his whistle and we ran which today we call 400 meters back then it was 440 yards quarter mile we'd run a quarter mile as fast as we could and come back to that spot and as we came across the line he would yell our times from the stopwatch to us because we nobody had wristwatches in those days we had no idea only the coach had a watch there weren't any wristwatches or stopwatches for athletes so he would tell us what our time was and then he would start talking about how slow we are and how stupid we are and how we've got to work harder. We're going to get beat in the next race unless we get more shape, better shape than this. Then he'd say, okay, let's do it again. And he'd blow the whistle and we'd do it again. We never knew how many we were going to do. We never knew how fast we were supposed to do them. We never knew how long the recovery interval was going to be between them. We didn't know anything. All we knew was he was going to eventually say, okay, that's enough. And so we're out, it's like being a slave. All of a sudden, you're just, you're just going, you're just running circles as hard as you can. But eventually, and this could be like we're going to do eight of them or we're going to do 28 of them. We don't have no idea what's going to happen. 
and the numbers are always just kind of like random. This is like the, the rats getting out, shocked was, when they yeah, eat the I food. Guess. Yeah, yeah, you'd go crazy. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. That, that was sports science back in the 1960s. So eventually, though, somebody would start throwing up. Eventually, somebody's always going to start throwing up. And so once we've got people throwing up, we know we're getting close to the end. We're only going to have a couple more to go. So, you know, the recovery start getting a little bit longer. People start throwing up. And eventually he says, after a couple more of these, he says, okay, that's enough. Let's, let's cool down and, and go back to work on whatever it was we're supposed to do next. So that was intervals till you puke. And that in the 20s, I could do that five days a week and spring back and do it the next day. And it was no problem whatsoever to do that at all. When I was in my 30s, I may have been able to do four days a week like that. It would have been a challenge, but I may have been able to pull off four. When I was in my 40s, maybe three in a week. When I was in my 50s, maybe twice a week. In my 60s, maybe once a week. So the recovery, the, the, the reality athletes learn as they get older is recovery becomes the main thing. You don't recover as fast anymore. It becomes very obvious that it takes longer to recover from a workout than it did just a short period of time ago, a couple of years ago. But when you think back decades ago, it's like obvious. You know, I compare when I was 20 years old to when I was 60 years old, and the difference was just amazing. I, I may have been able to do the workout one time when I was 60 years old in a week, maybe. I wouldn't have been as fast, but I may have been able to do it. But, you know, I couldn't, there's no, absolutely no way I could do it five times. I couldn't recover fast enough. And you're 20 years old, you can recover amazingly fast. That's the big difference. So that happens as you get older. Then there's all these other things that are happening in the background as you get older that we're, we're not going to have any control over how fast you recover. We've got a minimum control over that. We've learned a lot of things about nutrition and, and all this other stuff. There's lots of things we can do to speed up recovery or help recovery. But bottom line is your body's still not going to recover. You can't make it recover. Cannot make the body recover. It recovers at its own rate. You can only help it by providing things it needs for its own rate. But there's other things that are going on in the background that are also beginning to slow you down. First thing is your VO2 max, your aerobic capacity is declining. For the average American non non athlete, non active person, sedentary person, that goes down at the rate of about 15 points, 15 percentage points per decade. So one and a half percent per year, you're losing your VO2 max. For most average Americans, they, you know, when they're in their 20s, their VO2 max may be around 50, a little bit higher for men than for women, but let's say around 50. So if you start figuring if it's going down at, at 15% per decade, it doesn't take too long to get you down to really small numbers by doing nothing. The person who continues to exercise, though, keeps that relatively high, has a slower decline. And the person who continues to do high-intensity exercise in races, for example, that person declines very slowly. So it's half the rate of the sedentary person. Instead of being 15 points per decade, it's more like seven, seven and a half, eight points per decade. That person is losing. So there able to maintain this for a longer time. But, but if they don't do high-intensity training, it'll be more like 10 points per decade. So just going out and doing long, slow distance all the time does not get it done as you get older. Right. 
Which I feel like would be like the intuitive thing. You see a lot of people. Yeah, they're done with that, right? Like, you know, you could be forgiven for, you know, you get to whatever age you think is enough and, you know, you're just going to ride easier. You don't want to suffer anymore, right? Yeah, you've paid paid your price. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what athletes, that's what athletes think. But unfortunately, it's just the opposite. As you get older, the more important intensity becomes in your, in your life. And I'll come back to it again later on. So that's one thing that's happening is that is declining rather rapidly. So we need high intensity training. I would recommend for the older athlete, over 50 athlete, that they're doing high intensity training twice a week, two days a week, five days a week, easy, two days a week, hard. Okay. If they do that, they'll, they'll, they'll maintain their aerobic capacity for a long time. If they cut back on this side of the thing and add one more over here, six and one, now we're going to start seeing the decline a little bit more rapidly over time. It won't happen immediately. It'll be, it may be two years before I even notice the difference. But that's, that's going on. I can tell you it's happening. It happens to everybody. I've never known anybody yet that had their VO2 max get higher as they got older. Even The only time it happens is when somebody comes from being sedentary at an older age, like 50, to taking up an exercise program like running or triathlon or something, that person will see an increase in VO2 max, but it won't last very long before it plateaus and begins to go back down again. So eventually it's all it's going to go down for all of us. Everybody's going to experience that. We're not going to stop that from happening. You need to be doing high intensity. We can tie that in with um, muscle mass is being lost as you get older. You look at somebody who is in there who is really um, – an older age, you know, in 80s and 90s, and what you see is a person who's lost a lot of muscle. You see a skeleton, and sometimes you see a lot of fat hanging on the skeleton, but there's not much muscle there anymore. And that means loss of, of performance. That person has a hard time doing anything. Getting out of a chair becomes a challenge. Stepping up onto a curb becomes a challenge. All these little things that we take for granted you don't take for granted anymore if you've lost your muscle mass. You're trying to move this this weight in some way, get up out of a chair, for example, but you no longer have the muscle mass to do it. So you have to have a chair that's made to push you up so you can get out of the chair or things like that. You have to have a machine that carries you up the staircase at your house as opposed to walking up the stairs. So all these things that are being sold to older people are because they've lost their muscle mass. It's not because... They did anything wrong. It's just because they didn't do anything right. <laughs> That's good. What they should have been doing throughout their life is, is maintaining strength. You know, so we're, so I, I would say as you get older, strength training becomes more important. Mm-hmm. You need to maintain your muscle mass. You need to be doing things, big muscles like squats, you know, heavy, heavy lifting. Even if it's like only using body weight, one-legged squats for most older people, is a great thing to be doing. Right. One-legged squat, or even just sitting down in the chair and standing up. Just sit down and stand up 10 times. That That's the squat, basically. Doing things like that, but for the athlete, this is the sort of thing that by the time they're in their 50s, they need to be doing this. They should be doing it in their 20s and 30s and 40s. It's not nearly as important. It can still benefit performance. By the time they're in their 50s, they definitely need to be doing this. They need to be lifting weights, using big muscles. So that's that's the muscle mass which is being lost. We've got VO2 max being lost. We've got muscle mass being lost. And the third thing is we're gaining fat. 
that's the third of the three things we want to talk about. The book talks about these three things. So the third thing is we're gaining fat. We may, our body weight may stay the same, may not, but it may stay the same, but we're making a trade-off. We're losing muscle and we're gaining fat at the same time. And we see that in older people. You see a lot of, a lot of uh, unnecessary fat on older bodies. There are older people you see occasionally who've done a great job of staying active. You go to a race sometimes, look around for some of the older athletes. It's amazing what kind of shape some of them are in. They're just, they're just human specimens of, of fitness. Yeah. And they're in their maybe their 60s. It's just amazing what, what people can do. There was actually a study that looked at uh, a, a group of college students who had not been lifting weights at all and a group of 90-year-olds who were in nursing homes. They put them both on, who had not been lifting weights at all either, they put them both on a strength building program, and what they found was, over time, they had the exact same percentage of improvement in strength, even though there's something like 70 years of difference in their age. Oh, wow. Obviously, the 20-year-olds are lifting bigger weights, but we're talking about the percentage from where they started. The percentage of improvement was the same for both groups. So this old thing, you know, it's too late for me to do anything about it, is right. not does not hold water. It's mm-hmm. never too late. You can right. keep on building strength your entire life. You can, and you can certainly maintain it. Yeah. Well, I'm just not going to get older. That is my <laughs> new decision. Yeah, freeze the um, clock. Just done. Done with that. <laughs> well, we shouldn't. We, uh, should, we, we shouldn't sh- take up much more of your time. But maybe you could just tell everyone the title of the new book and where they can find it. Well, the new book, uh, it's called Ride Inside, and if the, uh, if the reader, or viewer rather, um, uh, wants to get a 15% discount, go to velopress.com, find the book there, Ride Inside, and use the coupon code Ride Inside, all lowercase. Super. And that's 15% off. Um, so um, that that's just hit the market. I mean, it's just gotten on the shelves. They can also get it. In uh, in a, um, um, a digital format, so for a Kindle, for example. Super. Yeah, and we'll we'll put that link, Joe, as well for uh, Velo Press, uh, just so everyone can find that. Yeah. And I mean, really, I feel like everyone just needs like the Joe Friel Library at home. I feel like I think we both have like the first we ha- like we cyclist have original training ones and mountain and the bike. Triathlon. But yeah, we didn't even get to talk about the the new triathlon book I loved as well. We did Iron Man just on a whim there a couple of years ago. So I was like, we got to get this new book. It came out at the the right time and it was perfect. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sure. very thankful, Joe, for your time today. And then, as we say, in all the years of, of service, everything and else, <laughs> all the all the good reading. Thank you very much. I enjoyed. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, please do us a huge favor. Leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us bring on, you know, great new guests. And yeah, we'd also love to hear from you. You can find us on the interwebs um, at consummateathlete.com, at consummateathlete on Instagram. Uh, and I am at Molly J. Herford on Instagram and Twitter. And Peter is at Peter Glassford. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week. Searching for the stories outside of cycling, but still inside cycling. 
The Gravelot is a weekly interview series where we talk about our shared experiences in the cycling community and talk with people that we think you guys might be interested in. Absolutely. And the Gravelot is actually not always about gravel, but it is the place that is your local trailhead. It could be the meetup parking lot where you meet your friends. Or the post-ride watering hole. It's really the place where you sit down, share your stories, and talk about life. Yeah, and dive into the things that really matter to you on two wheels or beyond. The Gravelot has brand new episodes every single Thursday morning, along with a bi-weekly editorial column every other Tuesday. So check out the show, check out the beeline, and join the conversation and find out all you need to know about The Gravelot at thegravelot.com.